I was at, uh, I'll change my introduction, I was at uh, Colorado Christian University two weeks ago for chapel, and um, I didn't realize the uh, clicker they gave me wasn't working. Um, didn't have time to test it, and I didn't realize it because the woman who was running things was actually running it from the back and anticipated me well at the beginning, but then it got worse, and no matter what I did, it wouldn't change, and then I would stop, and then it would change, and it was like, I'm not really in control here at all. <laughs> Technology has a way of doing that to you. Yes, as I was saying, it was the summer of 2000 when uh, our family had the privilege of uh, spending three weeks in Australia. I had recently um, written a book on money matters throughout the Bible, and people, for some reason, were interested in what I had to say. And so uh, on the three Sundays I was there, I preached in three different churches, different cities. Um, on 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 15. Um, so much so that our two young teenage daughters who had to sit through this three weeks in a row, and I think a couple of services a couple of times, uh, said afterwards they probably could have come up and delivered it for me. Um, and to make matters more interesting, the next summer we were in, in Guatemala, and uh, I was teaching at the seminary in Guatemala City, and we were invited to a uh, obviously a Spanish-speaking church one week, and the pastor was speaking on this passage, and Beth had had two years of Spanish, and she claimed she could understand it really well, um, better than anything else, um, and I could see why, because the, the contents were remarkably similar to what I had in my talk, and Rachel just pretended she could understand. Um, but... Uh, I should have seen the handwriting on the wall last Sunday because Carl and I were talking in the lobby and he said he was going to do this this week and I said, oh yeah, I've done something on that and uh, I, I like that passage. And then Tuesday the email comes out to uh, a bunch of people. Um, who's willing to substitute for me on Sunday? And I thought, I don't have to be the first one to reply to this. Um, I'm happy to let somebody else do it if they would like to. And one by one, all the very legitimate reasons came in why others couldn't do it. And I'm thinking, Lord, this is a sign, isn't it? Um, I should say I'll agree to do it. <laughs> So here we are. Although the talk has changed a little bit over the years, um, including having a new title, Money and Possessions, Can't I Have My Cake and Eat It Too? Especially on Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> or maybe you eat other things during the game besides cake. Isn't that, if we're honest, the view of many American and even Western Christians more generally, that um, I'll be happy to be involved in church. I will believe in Jesus Christ. Um, just leave my wallet alone. 
Um, don't make any demands uh, for my pocketbook. We have been so impressed ever since we joined Centennial about your generosity as a church overall, um, about how the budget is allocated, about priorities for local and global missions. And I know that there are people here who are remarkably generous. And I hope that continues because nationwide averages, and I know statistics can mislead because there are countless exceptions, but there are some trends that have been remarkably constant over the last 50 years during that period of time when people have really gathered statistics and information in some detail. Things like um, it's usually at least, I shouldn't say at least, I should say at most 20% of a given church that gives about 80% of what the church receives in a given year. They're usually at least 20%, and some very recent studies suggest that is going up dramatically, that give absolutely nothing that anybody can find a record of and trace to any kind of Christian work, including the churches they attend. There, there are trends in uh, our society and in our neighborhood in fitting with uh, the theme of mosaic. Carl sent me a barrage of statistics. If I read them all to you, that would be the sermon. Um, <laughs> but things like uh, the percentages haven't really changed since the days of formal school segregation in terms of how many people of the various ethnic groups uh, go to schools in less well-to-do neighborhoods and therefore are less well-resourced, even though now it's simply informal um, segregation, if you want to call it that. On a global scale and to a certain degree in the U.S., we were making some significant progress the number of people below what the United Nations deemed the, the poverty line had been more than cut in half since 2000. Incredible, wonderful. A lot of it due to nonprofits like World Vision, which we were not too many months ago encouraged to support, take on children. Guess what COVID has done? <laughs> The last two years, things have plummeted. And at one level, you can understand it. We, we have to take care of ourselves and our own first, but if that changes significantly our giving, then the people who are the neediest lose even what little help they were getting to get by. To say nothing of being ravaged by COVID because they have less resources to counter it. 
So I'm convinced that this is a topic that we need to return to uh, again and again. And I don't mind speaking on it um, because I'm not a full-time regular preacher in a local church. Um, when I speak elsewhere, I, I like to think of it as hit-and-run preaching. Um, <laughs> I hit and then I run. Um, leave others to pick up the pieces. Ironically, <laughs> I'm going to do that today too. <laughs> because in order to be here, we swapped with our daughter plans to uh, be at her church where we'll be next week and then... Uh, we're leaving the country for five months. <laughs> but I promise, Lord and COVID willing, we'll be back. <laughs> so you can hold us accountable <laughs> if you remember anything from now in August. One of the major undertakings for Paul throughout his ministry for several years at the heart of those missionary journeys that you've probably seen maps of, was taking up a collection. After a, an empire-wide famine had hit the eastern end of the Mediterranean and Israel and Judea within Israel and Jerusalem within Judea particularly hard. And uh, repeatedly he talks even in his letters about um, this collection that he is occupied with. 2 Corinthians 8 is part of his ongoing correspondence with uh, that church. And in chapters 8 to 9, we have, if you like Bible trivia, the longest uninterrupted teaching passage on money matters anywhere in scripture. But I don't think that's just trivia. I think it means it's an important topic and we should look at it. I'm going to break the passage down into three parts. I was going to do that anyway, but can't get more on a screen. Unless we make it minuscule. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, Paul writes, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring about to completion this act of grace on your part, and I'm actually going to stop one verse short from where the NIV ends the paragraph because I think verse 7 is sort of transitional to the next section. 
Paul begins by not addressing the Corinthians directly. He just wants to talk to them about somebody else. The Macedonians, if, if you can picture a map of the Greek peninsula, Macedonia was the northern half, Corinth was the biggest city in the southern half, also known as Achaia. If you can't picture a map of Greece, there it is, north, south. <laughs> now you can. Corinth was the wealthiest city in the peninsula in the middle of the first century. The cities and the churches further north were less well-to-do, and the Christians appear to have had it particularly tough, not only because not many of them came from the more well-to-do classes, but because at least in Thessalonica and then in Berea there had been considerable persecution that we read about in Acts chapter 17. And yet, despite that, Paul has some amazing things to say about these northern Greek Christians. Oops, I already had that up there, sorry. Lavish giving, despite deep poverty. Verse 2, in the midst of a very severe trial, the persecution, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty. <laughs> no, Paul, you mean in spite of their extreme poverty. No, that's not what he says. <laughs> he says their extreme poverty actually contributed to their rich generosity. They knew what it was like to be hurting and to at times depend on others for help. So they became even more generous to those who had still less. And then Paul continues. He may not have initially intended to ask all the people up north to help out. Because he talks about their voluntary taking of the initiative to give, even sacrificially. I testify, verse 3 says, that they gave us as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, at least beyond what Paul expected they'd be able to, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing this service for the Lord's people. When was the last time you begged somebody else to take your money? Because you know it was needed. You knew it was needed. And how is this possible? Paul says, they surrendered their whole lives to the Lord. And then to us. This, this wasn't the, uh, oh my gosh, hundreds of people are homeless because of an unexpected tragic fire. The, the famine had begun several years earlier and it actually, people were coming out of it now by the mid-50s when Paul's writing the Corinthians, but there's still a lot of suffering left over. This is something Paul can 
harp on for a few years. People can reflect on how they can give and how much they can give. It's part of an overall commitment to God's work in the world. And there's already been the beginning of some good news. Titus, Paul's uh, scout who's been going out ahead of him, has seen the generosity of the Macedonians. Paul then has seen it himself as he traveled over land en route to Corinth. Titus helped to start the project in Corinth. Paul is now sending him back to finish the collection. But there's still work to be done. It's fascinating if you look at the trends, and again, huge ballpark generalizations with lots of exceptions, but as people look at these things, at least in the US and to a certain degree in the Western world more generally, if you break everybody into just one of four categories, the wealthy, which nobody wants to admit they're in, um, the upper middle class, the lower middle class, and if you're perfectly in the middle, pick one, um, and those beneath a poverty line that people have established, consistently the most generous percentage-wise, based on their income. The most generous people are the lower half of the middle class. Probably because they're not used to saving a lot, because they're not in a position to save a lot. They probably have no investments. And, and so they've learned to sit loose to their funds. If you're curious, upper middle class are second, the poor are third, and the wealthy are the worst givers, percentage-wise. Too much to lose, too much at stake. And of course, under the pandemic, everything has been exacerbated. So far, all Paul is doing is commending the model of the Macedonians. I remember in the 90s when we had the privilege of spending three weeks in the former Soviet Union, St. Petersburg, Russia. The amazing generosity of a class of students of a couple dozen people. I was teaching a whirlwind New Testament introduction to through a translator when one of their number got word that her mother had died and she lived way across Russia and didn't even have the money for a train fare. And these other students who didn't have that much either pooled their resources to buy her the ticket to get that home and back. Didn't think twice about doing it. Incredible model. Nobody, nobody had to say anything directly to me. <laughs> I got the lesson. But now in verse 7, Paul does turn to the Corinthians more directly. And he writes, But since you excel in everything, 
and faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. It would appear that what Paul is saying as he moves to a direct call to the Corinthians is match the maturity that you have attained in all those other areas you remember that I had to write you about in 1 Corinthians. It just reads like a potpourri of problems. And verse 7 is incredibly commendatory. Since you excel in everything, a little bit of hyperbole, (laughs) because he's got one thing yet to talk to him about. But love, faith, speech, knowledge. Speech, knowledge, oh, you mean like those nasty spiritual gifts that they were so abusing. Yeah, they've made good progress, But like many Christians, (laughs) one's spending may be the last thing to become sanctified. (laughs) See that you also excel in this grace of giving. And for anyone who doubts that Paul understood psychology long before modern psychology, he says, I am not commanding you (laughs) Yeah, but he is. By the time we get to verse 11, he's commanding them, now finish the work. (laughs) Prove the trustworthiness of your promises given Christ's sacrifice for us. He says in verse 8, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And you say, wait a minute, doesn't this same Paul in chapter 10, just a couple chapters later, say we're not supposed to compare ourselves with other Christians? And, And he does. And that's in the context of in order to boast because we're better than them or maybe to become unduly depressed because they're better than us. But that's not what he's doing here. He's simply saying, look, here are people who have a lot less than you, and they've found a way to be generous. And I'm not even asking you for that same level of generosity. Just be a promise keeper. Back in the 90s, 
Promise Keepers were uh, an amazing group here in North America. And, and they taught people about racial equality, denominational equality. They got men in particular in small accountability groups. Even at the time, I thought, wonder if anybody will ever create small groups for financial accountability. <laughs> then we'd know we had really reached a point of Christian maturity. <laughs> yeah, somebody taught us years ago, don't talk about this. I don't know who originally said that. It's not biblical. But boy, my mom drummed it into me. You do not talk about our family's finances in public. I've been doing it ever since I left home. <laughs> and I finally told her, and she was finally okay with it when I explained what I was doing. <laughs> Just be faithful to your original commitment. In fact, last year, Paul says in verse 10, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Huh. So that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. Paul had bragged elsewhere about the Corinthian generosity. And in part, that's what inspired the poor Macedonians. Horror of horrors if they should learn that they fulfilled their pledge and the Corinthians hadn't yet. And so he says, complete your commitment. Oh, I, I realize circumstances sometimes change. The point is not the net amount. The point is your willingness. Are you willing to do as much as you possibly can? And then maybe a little bit more. At some point in conversations like these, someone asks, so... Are you asking the rich to trade places with the poor? <laughs> Robin Hood in Christian garb? <laughs> no. Paul actually anticipates that and addresses it next. The last three verses of our passage. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be isotes. Well, that's the Greek word. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is isotes. Why does he keep talking in a foreign language? As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Well, I, I, I used the Greek word, and I blew up the font slightly and put it in yellow, so that maybe you'd notice it, because Carl really wanted to camp there. He would have gone a lot faster through what I've done already. 
Sorry, Carl, if you're listening to this somewhere, someday. But it, it is worth pointing out that this is a word that's hard to come up with a perfect English equivalent to. Most translations say equality. I like what the ESV does here in saying fairness or the new revised standard, a fair balance. You could probably use the term equity because the illustration that Paul gives to back this up as he turns now to his rationale for his call is only a very relative equality. He starts by, in essence, applying the golden rule. Do unto others before they do... No, no, that's not it. Um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you were the ones in trouble, wouldn't you want others to be generous, especially within the church? So he says flat out, no, we're not asking the rich and poor to trade places. That would just keep the problem the same and the people on each side different. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The next natural disaster might hit Corinth. And then you'd want help from someplace else. The next tragic fire, God forbid, might sweep through Centennial. Let's pray not. But we can't say now that it can't happen. The goal is this strange word, as it is written, the one who has gathered much did not have too much, and the one who has gathered little did not have too little. The illustration is one that is not about every person or family unit having the same net amount of resources. Of all things, Paul refers back to what was, in the grand sweep of history, a very temporary arrangement. <laughs> Not so temporary if you were living through the 40 years of wilderness wanderings, but supernatural bread that appeared like dew on the grass every morning so that the Israelites called it in Hebrew manna, which means, what is it? Every morning, what is it, appeared. Except on the Sabbath, because they were supposed to collect double, which was provided for them the previous day, but if they tried to hoard it any other day, it went bad. Miracles are going on here. And yet, Paul does derive one abiding principle from the wilderness wanderings. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Different people and different families had different needs and had different abilities to collect. 
And so it wasn't that they all had exactly the same amount of resources, but nobody had too little. There was a threshold beneath which God did not allow his people to fall. What was that? Beats me. I think it's significant we're never told. We know. We know when we're honest with ourselves when people have too little. And in essence, what Paul is saying is that as long as there are people with too little that can't get themselves out of that predicament, it means there are some people who have too much. What level is that? No, we're not told that either. As it changes all the time and it changes for every person. The one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Fran and I were married a long time ago. Okay, 43 years this summer. And we were married one year after a blockbuster, controversial Christian book was being read and talked about all over the country and overseas by a man named Ron Sider called Rich Christians in Age of Hunger. It's gone through five editions, the last of which in the 2000s. Probably won't go through another because Ron is now in his early 80s. He was president of Evangelicals for Social Action for many years. Believed every last word of all the historic creeds and confessions of the faith, but was concerned that many, especially American Christians, were not adequately concerned for the marginalized, the outcast, the oppressed. And he encouraged Christians to consider something he called a graduated tithe. (laughs) That means they finished college. No. Um, Graduated in the sense that start at a place that you feel in good conscience before God, you can say is generous, even sacrificial, and then if the Lord blesses you in a coming year with more income actually above any cost of living raise that might occur, increase the percentage of your giving. We started that when we were living on a shoestring, when we learned the principle of a conduit. Any money we had ran straight through us, through the conduit to the university. (laughs) Some of you have been there. And we lived by faith that one day we would get a livable income. (laughs) And if and as God blessed, we would try to increase that giving. It was amazing how easy it was when all you do is change by one or two percent a year. You barely notice it, especially if you write the check back in the day 
to the church and other ministries you might support at the beginning of the month and don't have it and figure out how to live on the rest. I am convinced that many, many more American Christians could do that if they got serious about their giving. So what about you? Here's where I can be blunter than Carl. But I'll try not to be. Are there areas that you know you have surplus? Oh, it doesn't look like it at the end of the month, but, but I didn't spend so much in this area or in this area or in this area, which, if I'm completely honest, are not necessities, just luxuries. I could do a little better. And, and if you don't take this as a command to radically overhaul anything, but just take the next small step toward generosity, it might make it almost painless. And the results of seeing what a good church supports and does when you give generously to a local church and the results when you also give directly to organizations, especially those helping the poor at home and worldwide, is so much more rewarding than, wow, did the Bengals actually win the Super Bowl? Yeah, they probably won't, but uh, I'll save the story for why I'm rooting for them for another occasion. No, I'm not from Cincinnati. I've never even been to Cincinnati. Well, okay, a quarterback from my small Division III college in Illinois was a guy named Kenny Anderson who played for the Bengals way back when, so I got interested in them back then. That's not the takeaway from the message. I'm not going to be such a groupie as to put on a slide your move. <laughs> but it is your move now. <laughs> Are you going to take this message away and be grumbling? Pretty much I'm glad Lombard's going away for five months. Or will you say, yeah. It's true. I could do a little bit better. I could help another child have a really good chance at surviving to adulthood, becoming a Christian, and having a skill to make a living for the rest of their life, which is what world vision and compassion and groups like that do. Yeah, I could do a little bit more. And I'm on the committees for how the church budgets its money. And um, yeah, we could, we could in faith budget a little bit more and let our people know so that uh, they would give a little bit more. I'm convinced you guys would. But that's between you and the Lord. Worship team, would you come back up here as we pray? Father, thanks for Today, for everyone who's come here, for those who are watching, 
from home or elsewhere. Thank you for every rich blessing you've given us simply by dint of living in suburban Colorado. Help us see how we can help others more and better. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.